You're listening to Veterinary Vertex, a podcast of the AVMA journals. In this episode, we chat about PER and polyfluoral alkyl substances with our guests, Heather Brake and John Kanene. Welcome to Veterinary Vertex. I'm Editor-in-Chief Lisa Fortier, and I'm joined by Associate Editor Sarah Wright. Today, we're really excited to have Heather Brake and John Kanene joining us. Heather and John, thank you so much for sharing your information and taking your time to be with us here today. You both wrote manuscripts in JAVMA and AJVR that discuss PER and polyfluoral alkyl substances. What are these and how do they relate to veterinary medicine and One Health? Yeah, thank you so much. And um, thank you so much for inviting us both to um, be a part of this today. Uh, so PFAS are man-made chemicals that are colorless and odorless. Um, they're really unique in that they're stable at very high temperatures, and they're also oil and water repellent. And because of this properties, PFAS has been using everything from firefighting foam, sustain-resistant fabric coatings, to the surface of nonstick pots and pans. In fact, PFAS is so widespread that they have been found in almost every part of the world. Um, For humans, exposure to PFAS has been linked to a variety of adverse outcomes. Some of these include delays in development, learning and behavior, decreased fertility, increased cholesterol, decreased immune response, and even some cancers. And people can be exposed to PFAS through drinking contaminated water, breathing in contaminated air or dust, eating meat and produce that is contaminated, or by using consumer products that contain PFAS. So this topic is really very important and timely for both large and small animal um, veterinary medicine. People and animals do not live in isolation from each other. We all know that. Instead, we often share the same environment, water, and even some of the same foods. And it's likely that animals are going to be exposed to PFAS in the same way that we are and may have similar health outcomes. So there have been a very few studies related to PFAS exposures in animals outside the laboratory, but those we've found and included in these papers report that both large and small animals are impacted. So once absorbed into the bloodstream, PFAS typically can be found in the serum, the liver, and the kidneys, and this is due to their affinity for certain proteins that they're carried around the blood um, on proteins such as albumin. So small animal studies have indicated that PFAS can alter liver enzymes, cholesterol levels, and thyroid hormones, possibly even having a link to hyperthyroidism in cats. In large animals such as cattle, the story is a little bit more complicated, though. We don't see the clinical signs of PFAS contamination, but rather the chemical is found in the meat and milk. Um, So that right now there's still a lot of uncertainty about the safety of animal products following contamination. Um, But we do know that today, at least two dairy farms have been completely depopulated because of PFAS contamination. So this is really an issue that both large and small animal clinicians need to be aware of. John, how can people and animals avoid or reduce their exposure to these substances? Well, um, there are really many many ways that they can do. Um, uh, Number one is actually to follow up with literature, follow up with the uh, uh, physicians or the men whatever case, and uh, keep an eye on uh, the developing, developing information uh, about these products, particularly the sources, where are the sources, and the exposures that uh, potentially can uh, can be documented. So uh, the AVMA and uh, public health agencies have a big role to provide up-to-date information uh, periodically to be sure that, that people avoid uh, these exposures for themselves, for their families, and for their, for their animals. 
Uh, I'll echo what Sarah said. I learned a lot of reading both of these manuscripts. And I remember talking to you, Heather, a long time ago about uh, how fascinating this would be for a One Health issue. And yes. uh, it's certainly delivered all the way through. So thank you both again for this really, really important educational topic for, like you said, small and large and masters in public health and DVMs and PhDs and MDs. It's, yeah. it's really, really important. What sparked your guys' research interest in PFAS? Um, for me, it started in uh, uh, 19, uh, 2020. There are a lot of um, information, you know, from uh, popular media around the Great Lakes. Everybody talking about these chemicals, what they can do, particularly in humans and uh, fish and so on. Uh, there are several seminars at Michigan State University where people uh, provided you know, results of their studies and so on. Um, however, there was very little information about domesticated animals, uh, particularly the pets. So, um, but there was this acknowledgement that this is everywhere, uh, in the environment, in the water, in, uh, in sand, and some of potentially the food, uh, pet foods. So these were just things that people mentioned. Then I started to get really interested and I said, maybe we need to provide information that our veterinarians can at least uh, look at and be aware of this, uh, of this problem, but also identify gaps where we need to do more research. Well, there's yeah. certainly a lot of those, it looks like. So thank you. Uh, go ahead, Heather. You wanted to add something to that? Yeah. So, you know, I started thinking about this pro um, project about the same time Dr. Kennedy did. It was um, for me, it was the summer of 2019. And I remember sitting at an environmental health conference and listening to a speaker describe a human PFAS study that was happening. And at one point, she relayed a conversation with one of their participants. And I very distinctly remember this as that she she gestured and she said the the homeowner looked down at his dog and said, what is this doing to my pet? And I thought then and there that, you know, a light bulb went off and I was like, this is what we need to do. This is what it's a very critically important topic for us to focus in and for us as veterinarians to know about. So when I found out that there was a human study being conducted in West Michigan, where I'm from, I contacted Michigan State and Dr. Kanani and um, became a student again with uh, Michigan State Center for Comparative Epidemiology. Fascinating. And just even a little bit deeper than what inspired you to write these manuscripts for us? Um, there are really two, uh, two things. First of all, we wanted to ask the question, what is known about this uh, products in the literature, um, particularly as they relate to uh, to animals. Of course, we want to do with human uh, everything from a holistic or one health approach. But we wanted to be sure that we review uh, what is known and hopefully identify gaps uh, that may be a, a direction for future research. So we said, why don't we compile this and let the practitioners understand what we know to date so that they are aware of that. But also for the researchers, which actually with the focus on the second paper, say, okay, these are the kind of gaps. Where do we want to go in our research? So identifying those that we really think we should follow up in terms of research to argument what is known, particularly as it refers to 
not only just a pace, but using a one health approach. Yeah. Sorry, if I could add, just um, I would say that an additional reasons is because most of us as, as veterinary clinicians really don't remember very much from our toxicology class years ago, much less about PFAS. I remember one story about not having parrots in the kitchen while you're cooking with Teflon, right? But that's about it. Um, so I really wanted to provide some basic background about what the chemical is and how our patients can be exposed um, in a way that everyone could understand. And then we wanted to let veterinarians know what the potential clinical manifestations of PFAS exposure in their patients might be. Yeah, I can definitely echo that. Toxicology seems like years and years and years ago, of course. So you're not wrong there. <laughs> Thank you for educating us again. It's always important to bring those uh, important topics back to light. So you both have had really successful careers. How did your advanced training prepare you to write this manuscript? And Heather, we can start with you. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the hallmarks of veterinary preventative medicine really is that we as veterinarians can use our knowledge of animal health, both at the individual and the herd level, to protect human health. And so, for example, we can diagnose zoonotic diseases such as ringworm, roundworms, and enteric pathogens like salmonella and coli in our animal patients and know that by treating those infections, we are also protecting people. But my training has also taught me that the same principles of herd of population health or zoonosis can also be applied to chemical exposure. And um, to be fair, I've, I've been in environmental health for about seven years, but prior to that, I've worked a lot in infectious diseases. So I was surprised at how much, um, how important it is to know about human or pet health and animal health as it relates to chemical exposures for determining human health. In the same way, we believe that dogs and cats might someday be sentinels for the amount of PFAS exposure in people's households. So if that's the case, veterinarians will once again be on the front line of identifying potential human health hazards through the routine physical exams and blood chemistry testing conducted in the clinic. And so we really think that this is going to allow veterinarians to alert homeowners to the contamination and ultimately protect human and animal lives. And John, similar for you, how has your training helped prepare you to write this manuscript? Oh, quite a lot. Uh, first of all, my DVM um, really, is, as most of you know, the veterinary uh, degree is very comprehensive. Um, but gave me a chance to look at different species in a comparative way. But also my training in public health, I have a degree in public health and epidemiology. And what I do is comparative epidemiology. So I'm, I'm really always interested in comparing uh, disease processes uh, in different species, humans and animals. So this really is, is clearly in my uh, my lane, uh, trying to look what um, what we can do using epidemiological tools. And lately, uh, we have been using uh, epidemiology as a bridge with different disciplines to look at uh, one health approach uh, in solving problems. So this really prepared me to to, uh, to do this. So our next question is a very important one for our listeners, and either Heather or John can take this, whoever would like to. If a veterinarian is about to meet a client, what is one piece of information they should know about PER and polyfluoral alkyl substances? Yeah, and that's a real, an unfortunately complicated answer as well, because they're, you know, really despite the efforts of many of us to try to reduce or prohibit the amount of PFAS, um, 
the chemicals here to stay and has a potential risk for our animals and our families. So the inf- the one piece of information I want to give to veterinarians is that the science is evolving. If you are living in an area with known contamination, to just be aware and to pay attention to any um, uh, announcements or uh, uh, publications coming from AVMA and also from your local public health department to be aware of any potential contamination and then to um, look at uh, your clients and any potential health impacts there and think that they might be related to the contamination. I don't know whether I can add more than I think that's very uh, as exactly as what uh, I thought I would add. One more thing would be um, maybe to add for the veterinary uh, profession, you know, uh, professional groups like county, you know, associations and state. Um, not just the VMA, to start providing uh, some information about this uh, uh, this area, either in their seminars or their annual meetings and so on. I think the more uh, we know about it as a profession, uh, the better we can handle and be prepared to handle any, any questions. Yeah, gosh, John, I was just thinking the same thing, you know, like I was writing down as we were talking about, ooh, we need to invite these guys to give more uh, keynote speaker addresses to really engage veterinarians uh, more. So thank you again. Thank you. As we uh, start to wind up our podcast again, thank you so much. It's been a, really a pleasure uh, talking to both of you and getting to know you. Uh, we ask a little bit more personal question. And if you have this item with you, then you can show it too. We sometimes show video clips of these as well. Uh, maybe we'll start with you, John. What is the oldest or the most interesting item on your desk or in your desk drawer? Well, um, I have two things. One is a, a wristband that my father gave me many, many years ago um, when I was going to the first school. So I assume this was uh, a century ago, <laughs> but that's very, very, very valuable to me. But also there's an old Bible uh, that he gave me uh, that I keep at home. So that is, inspires me because he was a very inquisitive person. Uh, but also um, he believed in his faith. But the important thing is that that is a symbol for me to encourage me to be never to stop to learn and be inquisitive. That's really wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Heather, how about you? Yeah, so I was uh, I had a hard time with this because I actually don't have any desk drawers where I work, but there's a curio cabinet above my desk and there's um in there there's actually a fur seal pelt from the Pribloff Islands in Alaska. And um, when I was a graduate student at University of Kentucky, I went with my professor to the Pribloffs to study hookworms and um in the fur seals there. And so one of the things we saw there is that the people of that area relied heavily on the seals for food. Um, and so on the back of the pelt is a painting of them harvesting the seals. And ironically, we were there because the first seals were dying of starvation from a human. Humans were overfishing them in the area. So it's just a, a very interesting reminder of how interconnected humans and animals are. Gosh, I'll have to say those are the most rich live stories that we've gotten in the answers to that. So uh, that question. So thank you. Thank you. Our next one is also a little bit of the uh, 
personal nature. And, you know, we often hear sometimes, oh, you have to have grit to get through medical school or an MPH or a PhD and all those things. And so grit has become kind of a trendy word. And both of you clearly have it. So maybe we'll reverse order and start with you, Heather. Uh, Where did your grit come from? Yeah, you know, we, Dr. Canini and I kind of discussed this too. And I, and uh, I would say that um, my grit would come from my mother and um, she really inspired me because when I was 10, um, she decided to go back to school and she was a single mom of two kids. So she took my brother and I and moved on to campus and went back to get a degree so that she could um, make life a little bit better for us. And so I always um, think about her and how hard she worked. Um, and it's it's truly an inspiration to me. Oh, that's wonderful. How about you, John? Uh, Claire of my father. My father was a farmer. I was raised in uh, in Uganda, around Lake Victoria, where River Nile begins to flow north Egypt. And we had a dairy farm. And we used to have problem with foot and mouth disease. And my father would say, where does this disease come from? Is it the wind, the water, is it comes and goes and so on? And he said, I wish I, I could answer that question. How this how disease can be transmitted one time and then disappears. So when I went to vet school and I took a course in epidemiology, the professor is a female, I'll never forget her name. She said, We're going to teach you how diseases can be transmitted. This, 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 and this this one is called epidemiology. And since then, this has been my inspiration. Uh, really inspiring. Thank you both. We just really appreciate you contributing to both Java and AJVR and for your time today, too, and being here for our listeners. So thank you. Thank you. We have enjoyed it. And thank you for doing thank this you. for our profession. Yeah. Of course, we think it's important to get the information out there. And we've gotten some really positive feedback. So we're just really happy to be able to provide this um, for our listeners and for our subscribers. So thank you both again. To our listeners, you can read Heather and John's open access Currents in One Health manuscripts on our journal's website and in print JAPMA. I'm Dr. Sarah Wright with Dr. Lisa Fortier. We want to thank each of you for joining us on this episode of the Veterinary Vertex podcast. We love sharing cutting-edge veterinary research with you, and we want to hear from you. Be sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to. Until next time, take care, and we'll see you soon.